I'm going to rip the Band-Aid off right here. There is no such thing as the gunfight at the OK Corral. Sure, there was a gunfight in Tombstone on October 26, 1881, and sure, it was between the Earps, Doc Holliday, and the Clantons and the McLowrys, and sure, it left three of those men dead in the end. But still, there is no such thing as the gunfight at the OK Corral. It's a misconception that has lingered for more than a hundred years now and will likely never dissipate. And like most of the not-so-true portions of the story that never go away the blame falls on the shoulders of Wyatt Earp. In his twilight years, Earp confused the actual location when he recounted the events of the shooting. So, first things first. The gunfight actually happened in an empty lot off of Fremont Street, one block over from the OK Corral, which was located off of Allen Street. Wyatt Earp historian Scott Dyke suggests that maybe it should be called the Fight at Flies, as the lot was next to the C.S. Fly boarding house, where Doc Holliday and Big Nose Kate were temporarily housed. He also, tongue firmly planted in cheek, supports the title, The Street Shootout Across from Eddie Borland's Dress Shop. Of course, all this is just bookkeeping. Interesting bookkeeping, mind you, but just bookkeeping. No matter the actual location, it doesn't change the fact that on the afternoon of October 26, 1881, Wyatt... Virgil and Morgan Earp, flanked by Doc Holliday, clashed violently with Tom and Frank McLowry, along with Ike and Billy Clanton. This bloody confrontation lasted a mere half a minute, but at the end, three cowboys were dead on the ground in the lot across from Eddie Borland's dress shop, and the Earps and Holliday rode off to their place in history. And the whole world would come to know of the gunfight at the OK Corral. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 88, The OK Corral, Part 6. 30 seconds, 30 bullets. Welcome back, everyone. Last week, we left off on the morning of October 26th, with a very tense evening giving way to a very tense poker game, giving way to what everyone hoped would be a drowsy dawn. Remember that Ike Clanton, not the smartest guy and paranoid to boot, was convinced White had spilled the beans about a secret deal to hand over the cowboys who had tried to rob the tombstone to Benson stage and murdered two people in the process. Fearing that such a thing would result in the other cowboys getting rid of him, expeditiously, he was making loud noises about taking out anyone who might give him away. And on October 25th, he spent the day carousing and drinking, followed by an evening carousing and drinking, and getting into a heated argument with Holiday and Morgan, and then a full night playing cards, and you guessed it, drinking. Everyone told him to go sleep it off, but he chose to ignore that. Instead, he did the other thing, you know, where he kept drinking. At 8 a.m., a bartender coming off shift encountered Ike, who was not only walking around in a drunken, tired stupor, but was also wearing a pistol in his waistband. And you might remember from last week that, according to a recent town ordinance, that was a big no-no. 
This bartender listened to Ike's sordid tale of being manhandled roughly by Holiday and the Earps and that he was waiting for a definitive confrontation. And then this bartender, after telling Ike to go sleep it off, becoming like the 50th person to do so, he hurried over to Wyatt's house to warn him. But a sleepy Wyatt wasn't all that concerned. After all, it was just Ike Clanton, and he went back to bed. About an hour after the bartender found Ike on the streets of Tombstone, Ike found himself in a local wine house where, now armed with a rifle, he talked more about his grievances with the Earps and his desire to pick a fight. And by now, word was starting to trickle through the morning crowd in Tombstone that Ike Clanton was drunk and looking to confront their chief of police and his brothers. A policeman hearing this hustled his way over to Virgil's place, where he repeated what was happening. But Virgil reacted much like Wyatt and went straight back to bed. To be fair, he had only been asleep for a handful of hours and maybe it was just too tired, or maybe it's because he spent literally all night with Ike Clanton and just didn't think his threats would amount to anything. But we can skip the next couple of hours while Ike kept getting more drunk, he was on a nearly 24-hour bender now, and people kept hearing more and more rumors that something was going down. But the main players on the Earp side were continuing to sleep in. Virgil would finally emerge around noon and was greeted with more people telling him that Ike was intoxicated, armed, and out to get him. Of course, finding that hours later Ike had not gotten any more sober or calmer, Virgil had to act. Rounding up Morgan, the pair eventually spotted Ike on Fremont Street, engaged in conversation with Mayor John Clum of all people. The brothers managed to sneak up on him, with Virgil grabbing his rifle and then whacking Ike across the skull with the butt of his pistol. For someone who had spent the better part of the morning breathing out threats against the Earps, Ike was now 0-1 when it came to an actual fight. His record will not improve. With Ike down at his feet and bleeding, Virgil had him disarmed and hauled to jail for breaking town ordinances. Unfortunately, there was no judge around, so Virgil left to find one, leaving Ike in the custody of Morgan and Wyatt, who had joined them. Now, this might have been something of a misstep, because Morgan and Wyatt started to confront Ike about all the trash he had been talking all morning. Wyatt called him a dirty cow thief, to which Clanton is supposed to have said, quote, Fighting is my racket. All I want is four feet of ground. End quote. Meanwhile, Morgan goaded Ike on with the man's own pistol. However, despite his boasting, and in a surprising moment of clear thinking, Ike declined to take the pistol when Morgan challenged him to live up to all his talk. Luckily, Virgil was not long in finding the judge, and the hearing was over in minutes. It was an open and shut case, after all. Ike was clearly in violation of Tombstone's ban on carrying weapons around town, and so was fined $25 plus an additional $2.50 in court cost. His weapons were confiscated and checked in at the Grand Hotel for when Ike was actually going to leave town. Perhaps on any other day, that would have been it, except that all the dealings with Ike had left Wyatt in a bad mood. And that was going to stir up even more trouble. There were two vital pieces of information in last week's episode that informs what happens next. The first is that Ike did not come into Tombstone by himself. 
Tom McLarry had been at the all-night poker game with Virgil, Ike, and Johnny Bean, and, like everyone else, had slept in. When he finally got up and out onto the town, it was to learn that an intoxicated Ike had been going around town with guns threatening the Earps. That meant, whatever his plans had been, it was time to find his companion and see what a mess he had created. Unfortunately for Tom, it was a bad-tempered Wyatt that he found first, outside the court. The exchange between the two men isn't that well-tested to, but we know that the sight of another cowboy lit Wyatt up like a match. He would later say that Tom had been openly carrying a gun in his waistband, though this is a dubious claim. But whatever transpired, we do know that Wyatt fell back on his instincts. He first slapped Tom and then pistol-whipped him to the ground. Unlike his brother Frank, who had threatened two Earp brothers on several occasions, Tom was not known as a violent man, and he knew better than to start a fight with the infuriated Wyatt. So as the angry white Earp marched off, Tom picked himself up and went about his business, maybe thinking that leaving Tombstone sooner rather than later was a good idea. And this is where the other bit from last week comes in. Ike and Tom had come into town on October 25th, but made plans for Ike's brother Billy and Tom's brother Frank to come in the next day after they had finished some chores at the ranch. Around 1 o'clock in the afternoon, Billy and Frank rode in, probably looking forward to some drinking and carousing with their kin before heading home. They saddled up to the bar at the Grand Hotel, only for another cowboy to eagerly spread the gossip about what had just happened to Ike and Tom. Leaving their drinks untouched, the pair instantly went out onto the street to find their brothers and to get a read on what had actually happened. The four then proceeded into a store called Spangberg's, I think is the pronunciation, which, ominously enough, sold guns and ammunition. Although I guess that's only ominous with hindsight, as you might imagine the need for guns and ammunition was pretty high on the frontier most of the time. Unfortunately, guess who happened to watch the two men he had just accosted and their brothers walk into a store and buy bullets? Yep. That's right, none other than White Earp, who was definitely still in a foul mood. And this is where we get one of those almost grade school antics that people do when they are upset. Because Frank McLowry had tied his horse up a bit too close to the building, and so the horse had clomped onto the sidewalk and was actually starting to stick its head through the door. So Wyatt, just to be ornery, walked over and began pulling on the horse's reins. The McLowrys and the Clantons hustled out of the store to take possession of Frank's horse, with Wyatt yelling at them that they couldn't leave the horse on the sidewalk. It was a stupid little jerk move just to be a jerk, and Frank responded by yanking the reins, tying the horse up where it needed to be, and turning and going back into the store. By the by, Wyatt would also later claim that during this encounter, Billy Clanton clearly had his hand resting on his pistol. Sure, Wyatt, whatever you say. But by now, the whole town was abuzz with the news of the cowboys and the threats that had been going around this morning. Threats they were all too happy to repeat to the Earps when they saw them. Even easygoing Virgil was starting to get a little nervous, 
so he went down to the Wells Fargo office and he borrowed a shotgun, just in case. At this point, Morgan was already a deputized officer, so Virgil went ahead and made sure Wyatt had the temporary legal authority too. If something was going to go down, then all the Earps had to be able to act. And here let's bring in the other man who was sleeping the previous night off. Johnny Bean. Like everyone else in the story, he too had slept in, likely not expecting any trouble or the need to be up and at him the next day. He was down at the local barbershop receiving a shave when he started to hear the rumblings that something was about to happen between the Earps and the Cowboys. Johnny eventually ran into Virgil, who was accompanied by Doc Holliday, because that's just the sort of character to have during such a volatile day, and everyone went inside for a drink to talk the situation over. During this discussion, Virgil asked Johnny, who was the county sheriff after all, to go down with him and confront the cowboys and disarm them. Johnny, however, offered to go by himself to ask the Clantons and McLowrys to turn in their weapons. We have conflicting viewpoints on this offer depending on who you believe. In one telling, Johnny was concerned that any police action involving Virgil would just result in violence, so him stepping in now would be a way to de-escalate the situation and everyone went home that night. In the other version, Johnny is trying to get word to his cowboy buddies to head out before the Earps had the chance to do anything stupid. Now, I'm not sure who's entirely right, but I will say that Johnny does strike me as the kind of person who was always looking out for his best interests, so I have to believe there was some sort of angle he was working here. But whatever reason you choose, the offer was accepted and Johnny went out to find the Cowboys. Meanwhile, Ike, Billy, Tom, and Frank had gone to retrieve their horses, but were taking a very long time to do so. They happened to pause near the OK Corral, where they did something that, again in hindsight, was probably pretty stupid. They complained up and down and loudly about the herbs and how they had been treated. And mixed in there were plenty of threats about what they would do if they ever saw those blankety-blank herbs again. Seriously, it's like a bunch of junior high kids hanging out or something. The cowboys had moved on from the OK Corral when Johnny went out to find them. They were now a block away in an empty lot near Fremont Street, one that just so happened to be next to the Fly Boarding House and across the street from a dress shop, if you catch my drift. What Johnny said or promised in that emptied lot is hotly disputed, but he either tried to disarm them or exacted promises that they would come with him and hand over their weapons. Except time was not on his side. After waiting for Bean to come back for something like 30 minutes, the Earps got impatient. Rumors were still swirling around Tombstone about the threats the Cowboys had made, especially recently in their loud discussions near the OK Corral, and possibly in a moment of bravado not to look weak, the Earps decided to act. Virgil possibly also swore in Doc Holliday, and he decided it was time to disarm the Cowboys himself. The black-clad Earps, with a gray-clad holiday, left the bar and headed down Fremont Street. On the way, Virgil would exchange the shotgun that he had gotten from Wells Fargo for Doc Holliday's cane, while he still had a pistol in his waistband. Dyke points out that this was a very questionable decision on Virgil's part, because 
Why in the world do you give a volatile character like Doc Holliday the most deadly weapon you have? However, he did carry the cane in his right hand, which was Virgil's shooting hand, which suggests that he didn't expect, or didn't mean to start, any trouble. Morgan most likely had his pistol out, while Wyatt slipped his into his coat pocket. But I really love this bit because it speaks to the Old West so much. Wyatt's coat pocket was special. It was actually leather-lined so that a gun could be easily pulled from it without fear of snagging. Right before the final confrontation, the Herbs and Holiday ran into Johnny Bean, where again we get into another game of he said, she said. Both White and Virgil testified that Johnny told them that he had already disarmed the cowboys, so there was no need for any further violence. According to Johnny, he actually said he was in the process of disarming the cowboys, so they needed to back off and let him do his work. But the Earps had already decided to act, and it wasn't like they were going to take any advice from Johnny, who they all more or less disliked. After all, he had disarmed the cowboys, right? So no problem. So on that cold October afternoon, with the skies above threatening to snow, the four men walked into the empty lot off Fremont Street. Now, ladies and gentlemen, the event you have all been waiting for. The Earps, having brushed off Bean, went to face their destiny. Johnny, meanwhile, hurried Billy Claiborne, a cowboy and friend of the Clantons and McLowrys, out of immediate danger. Second-by-second breakdowns of what may have happened that afternoon are abundant, but I'm going to mainly use the accounting from Dyke, with some supporting help from author Jeff Gwynn if I think it's necessary. Virgil, as the town marshal, demanded that the four men, Ike and Billy Clanton, Tom and Frank McLowry, give up their weapons. But then either Wyatt or Morgan really put things into high gear by calling out, and apologies in advance for the language, quote, You sons of bitches have been looking for a fight. Now you'll have it. End quote. Because in a tense standoff that your brother is trying to resolve peacefully, why not yell something inflammatory like that? In Dyke's words, quote, Maybe one of the cowboys put hands on a holstered pistol. Virgil responded, I don't want that. Two shots rang out in unison. All hell broke loose. End quote. There's a whole subgenre of OK Corral history out there discussing who may have fired the first shot, which, quite frankly, is impossible to tell now. But for what it's worth, when I was in elementary school, our fourth grade year was when we studied Arizona history. And I, as a really cute little kid, helped with a small presentation on the shootout at the OK Corral where I played the part of Billy Clanton. And one of my lines was that I, or you know, Billy, probably fired first. I can't really vouch for the research fourth grade me did to come to this position, but I pass it along just for funsies. In fact, the scene was utter chaos. There were seven combatants, we'll get to why only seven in just a second, who were all moving, there were two horses, lots of gunsmoke, and 30 bullets exchanged, all in a 15-foot wide lot. And oh, by the way, it all happened in 30 seconds. Here's what we do know. Despite all his braggadocio from his 24-hour hate-fueled bender, Ike Clanton gave up after the first bullets were exchanged. 
The man who, more or less, had started the whole miserable chain of events ran forward and grabbed onto Wyatt, possibly yelling that he was unarmed and he didn't want any of this. Wyatt pushed him away, snarling that Ike had better fight or run. He chose the latter and would later be found cowering in an office. Frank McLowry, who had threatened the Earps on multiple occasions, was shot in the stomach during the first exchange of bullets. However, he continued firing until he was shot in the head along Fremont Street. His brother Tom received the business end of the shotgun Doc Holliday was now wielding. His upper right side took the pellets and he staggered to a telegraph pole west of the lot, where he finally collapsed. Billy Clanton, Ike's brother, decided to go the full Boromir route, not immediately dying despite receiving gunshots to the wrist, lung, and abdomen. He would slump against the wall, still asking for more cartridges to fire back with. His final request was to be allowed to die, saying that he was being murdered by the Earps. After receiving some morphine to help the process, Billy too was gone. The Earps, while definitely the winners, were also a little worse for the wear. Morgan had a bullet traverse his back, actually chipping bone. Virgil was shot through his right calf, but the bullet went through and through, and if action movies have taught us anything, that means, you know, you're fine. Doc Holliday would take a grazing bullet to the hip, which left a big red welt. Only Wyatt remained unscathed, though his coat did take two bullet holes. Dyke makes a great point, however, that the outcome of this gunfight was never really in doubt. The Earps were experienced lawmen who'd been in tough situations before. As we've seen, both Virgil and Wyatt had been in firefights with desperados. And though Doc Holliday was a poor shot, he was wielding the shotgun, the deadliest weapon on scene and maybe the most likely to hit an intended target. Meanwhile, the Clantons and the McLowrys didn't really have the background for this kind of showdown. They may have identified as cowboys, but they were, in fact, ranchers who profited off the rustling happening all around them, not the rustlers themselves. We already saw that Ike had run off at the first sign of trouble. If cowboy figures like Johnny Ringo or Curly Bill Brokius had been involved in this altercation, the results could have been vastly different. But they weren't there. Just the Clantons and the McLowrys were there, and then 30 seconds later, none of them were. And that, my friends, is the gunfight at the OK Corral. But uh, just remember that there's no such thing as the gunfight at the OK Corral, alright? After the shooting had stopped, everyone tried to make sense out of what had just happened. The bodies of the dead cowboys were eventually brought together into the same house, though they were not immediately dead. Tom, slumped against that telegraph pole, was still breathing, though he wasn't saying anything. Billy was writhing in pain. Frank? Well, Frank was actually dead at this point. It was quickly determined that the three were beyond medical help, hence the morphine to help Billy along. The coroner later recorded that he took off of Frank McLowry one Colt six-shooter with a belt and cartridges, from Billy Clanton, a Colt six-shooter with a belt and cartridges, but didn't have any record of anything on Tom's body, which led to speculation among cowboy supporters that he had never been armed in the first place. But that's speculation for another time. 
Immediately after the shooting, the town seems to have sided with the Arabs. After all, hadn't they spent all day listening to Ike Clanton run his mouth about how he wanted to get revenge on them? And hadn't Virgil been the town marshal, doing his job to disarm four cowboys who are flaunting weapons despite town ordinances? The next morning, that same citizenry woke up to editions of the Epitaph and, surprisingly enough, the Nugget, which both backed up the brothers. Under a headline that read, Three Men Hurled into Eternity, John Clum's epitaph wrote, quote, The feeling among the best class of our citizens is that the marshal, meaning Virgil, was entirely justified in his efforts to disarm these men, and that being fired upon, they had to defend themselves, which they did most bravely. End quote. The Nugget ran a similar story, saying that the shooting had only happened because Frank McLowry had tried to draw his gun after Virgil announced he was going to disarm the cowboys. The 26th of October, 1881, the Nugget story read, will always be marked as one of the crimson days in the annals of Tombstone, a day when bloodshed flowed like water and human life was held as a shuttlecock. However, by the afternoon of October 27th, opinions were starting to change. The three dead men, after being restored to some semblance of a decent appearance by the undertakers, were displayed in a funeral parlor window with a giant sign that read, Murdered in the Streets of Tombstone. Clara Brown, the columnist for the paper in San Diego, wrote, quote, Opinion is fairly divided as to the justification of the killing. You may meet one man who will support the Earps and declare that no other course was possible to save their own lives, and the next man is just as likely to assert that there was no occasion whatever for bloodshed, and that this will be a warm place for the Earps hereafter. End quote. Dyke makes a wonderful point that in the annals of U.S. history, perhaps the only more intensely scrutinized seconds of gunfire would be the JFK assassination but both have been scrutinized and dissected and pontificated upon by historians and amateur sleuths alike. Which leads to a very natural question. Why? Why would this fight, in the middle of nowhere, become one of the most famous incidents in U.S. Western history? In my opinion, and I will stress that this is just my opinion, there are several possibilities. The first is White himself, who made sure to talk about the gunfight with people interested in telling the story. In his later years, he was friends with a decent number of folks in the burgeoning Hollywood film industry, though none of them either made a movie of his life or played him. Though he did have his own influence on the Western genre, with the legendary John Wayne saying that he molded his cowboy swagger after Earp. The second interrelated reason is Stuart Lake's mostly fictional biography, which came out during the age of Western serials and was so romantic that it practically begged to be made into a movie. The gunfight at the OK Corral was a perfectly crafted set piece for the golden age of Hollywood, what with the heroic lawmen facing off against dastardly cattle rustlers and saving the town from lawlessness. And when that story is told enough times on the silver screen, with the based on a true story tag attached to it, it's definitely going to sink into the public consciousness. And finally, 
I think this incident is one of the few, the very few, that actually matches the image people have in their heads from way too many Old West films. A gunfight like this was actually exceedingly rare, but this is one that almost lives up to the cliché, though it happened at about 2.30 in the afternoon and not, you know, high noon. Whatever reason you want to pick, Wyatt and his brothers had just cemented their legendary status in history. But join me next week when that status gets a lot more complicated, as the Irvs and the Cowboys fight over which way to spin the gunfight in the public imagination. A fight which will eventually lead to Virgil being maimed, Morgan killed, and Wyatt going on a revenge-fueled ride through southern Arizona. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.